1: is that? Well, no. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time, although it's hard to even tell the time through that haze that's uh, rested on the uh, the metro area. Uh, engineering today's program, Dave King, and uh, we're glad to have you with us. We're going to talk with Jack Deere. He is the author most recently of Even in Our Darkness, the story of beauty in a broken life. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Well, an air quality alert is in effect until Wednesday for parts of northwest Oregon and southwest Washington. The air quality here in Portland in the metro area has deteriorated to unhealthy levels, we're being told. This is a haze from wildfires burning to the north. It's returned to the Portland area on Sunday, brought poor air quality with it. Portland's air quality index has been above 100, which is unhealthy for sensitive groups since Sunday morning. At 1030 a.m. on Monday, it was 126. There you have it. Ratings higher than 100 are considered unhealthy for sensitive groups, and a reading higher than 150 is considered unhealthy for everyone. So we're halfway there. The AQI, again, the um, uh, Air Quality Index, uh, measures how many particles are in the air. Last week, Portland's AQI topped 160. Portland Public Schools suspended all outdoor practices uh, this morning because of the air quality. Smoke in the area is supposed to last through Wednesday. That's according to the alert issued by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality and the Southwest clean air agency the national weather service uh, in portland advises residents in northwest oregon and southwest washington to avoid outdoor activities through tuesday when the air is unhealthy everybody should reduce prolonged or heavy exertion consider staying inside people with heart or lung disease older adults and children are at greater risk and should avoid prolonged or heavy exertion during this time so keep that in mind One of the headlines I read earlier today on KGW I found particularly intriguing. It read, don't vacuum while wildfire smoke is in the air. If you were looking for an excuse, you now officially have one. Again, the air quality here in the Pacific Northwest is too poor due to the wildfire smoke. And we're now being told not to vacuum the carpet. Doctors warn that vacuuming can kick up particle matter, potentially making unhealthy air rather even worse. Northwest residents should avoid vacuuming for up to a week Yes, reprieve as they wait for the wildfire smoke that's again descended over the lowlands to clear. A shift in winds on Sunday brought that smoke from British Columbia and the Cascades into the Seattle, Portland areas. The air quality is considered unhealthy for everyone. Uh, for much of King and Pierce counties, according to the Puget Sound Clean Air Agency, Kitsap County and uh, areas near Cascade Foothills, they're expecting uh, rather experiencing air quality ranging from moderate to unhealthy for sensitive groups. And of course, we know we're at one about, uh, we are at about 126, which is all, uh, almost at uh, unhealthy for everybody, but certainly surpasses unhealthy for people who are sensitive. So don't vacuum for about a week. Where was that advisory when I vacuumed last? Well, some of the uh, developing stories uh, from last week, we didn't get a chance to, uh, to go into President Trump uh, could revoke the security clearance of more former Obama-era administration officials and critics uh, soon, d- uh, despite criticism of his action against the former CIA director, John Brennan. And uh, the president's daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, has blasted a new um, uh, secret recording released by Amarosa that appears to show her offering the former reality star a job on Trump's re-election campaign, Omarosa repeatedly Uh, Reportedly could have hundreds of uh, secret recordings sparking concern among White House officials, not to mention uh, the uh, concern about when and where those uh, recordings were made and whether or not rules were violated. And uh, an actress who played a key role in the downfall of disgraced Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein and in igniting the Me Too movement agreed to pay a younger actor who accused her of sexual assault hush money as part of a deal, according to a new report. Former CIA director John Brennan says he's considering taking legal action against President Trump over the revoking of his security clearance. And the president's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has raised eyebrows and sparked confusion while trying to explain his reluctance to have Trump sit down for an interview with special counsel Robert Mueller. Mueller's team. Well, jurors in the fraud trial of ex-Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort are expected to return and did for a third day of deliberations today. The Trump administration reportedly has rejected an offer from Turkey to free the American pastor uh, in exchange for relief for a Turkish bank facing billions in U.S. fines. The president said he will not pay for the freedom of an innocent man. Well, actress Asia Argentino, um, or rather Argento, one of the first prominent women to accuse disgraced movie mogul Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault, agreed to pay $380,000 to an actor who accused her of sexually assaulting him when he was 17 years old. The New York Times reported uh, Sunday night. The actor claimed that the assault took place in a California hotel in 2013, according to the report. The age of consent in California is 18. The newspaper obtained documents sent between lawyers... Um, uh, for Argento and the accuser that laid out a payment schedule. The notice of intent asked for $3.5 million in damages. The Times reported that the final agreement was reached in April of this year. Argento, now 42, played a prominent role in the downfall of Harvey Weinstein, the former head of Miramax. In October of last year, The New Yorker published allegations she made that Weinstein um uh, assaulted her uh, the allegations against Weinstein by Argento and other actresses including Ashley Judd Gwyneth Paltrow Angelina Jolie and Rose McGowan gave rise to the global me too movement and prompted a reexamination of the behavior of prominent men in other industries most notably media and John Brennan, the former CIA director and outspoken critic of the president, said in an interview on Sunday that he's willing to do whatever he can to prevent others from having their security clearance revoked, including taking the president to court. Now, by the way, the security uh, clearance essentially is a resume enhancement. It uh, It's little more than that, but it does give you greater access uh, to uh, possible Uh, employment and certainly uh, positions of prestige. But Brennan, who was on NBC's Meet the Press, said lawyers have approached him on the issue and spoke about obtaining an injunction to prevent more security clearances being revoked. Brennan, who served in President Obama's administration, said it's up to Congress to put aside politics and step in. This is the time that that your country is going to rely on you not to do what is best for your uh, party, but what is best for the country. It's important to note that in um, the Obama administration, the Washington Post in particular, but others were calling for Brennan's security clearance to be revoked at that time. It wasn't, but uh, the tables have turned rather dramatically as uh, many were called for that to be done during the previous administration. By the way, don't expect a ceasefire in the war of words between Brennan and Trump. The former CIA director turned MSNBC pundit is scheduled to appear on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday. I won't be watching. President Trump's attorney, Rudolph Giuliani, proclaimed Sunday that truth isn't truth while attempting to explain his reluctance to have the president sit down for an interview with special counsel Robert Mueller's team. I'm uh, not going to be rushed into having him testify so that he gets trapped into perjury, he said on NBC News Meet the Press. And when you tell me that, you know you should testify because he's going to tell the truth and he shouldn't worry. Well, that's so silly because it's somebody's version of the truth, not the truth. Truth is truth, interrupted the moderator, Chuck Todd, to which Giuliani responded, no, it isn't truth. Truth isn't truth. I'm getting a bit dizzy. Trump um, repeatedly has said that he is open to sitting down with Mueller's investigators. However, attorneys Giuliani and Jay Sekulow have cautioned against it. Both sides have uh, exchanged proposals for interview conditions, but no agreement has been struck. Well, the uh, president's lawyers also have said they would fight any attempt by Mueller to issue a subpoena to uh, force the president to do just that. Well, jury deliberations... Uh, resumed earlier today in the financial fraud trial of former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. Monday marks the third day that jurors ponder the 18-count indictment. Federal prosecutors in the trial in Alexandria, Virginia alleged that Manafort hid tens of millions of dollars in foreign income. They also say he lied on loan applications to obtain millions more to maintain his lavish lifestyle. Manafort's attorneys didn't call witnesses in his defense, claiming the prosecution had failed to meet its burden of proof. His attorneys attacked the uh, credibility of the key witness, one-time Manafort protege Rick Gates. And the Trump administration rebuffed Turkey's offer to release detained American pastor Andrew Brunson if the United States halts the investigation into Turkish bank Uh, Hulk Hulk Bank, the Wall Street Journal, reported uh, yesterday the Turkish government agreed to drop terrorism charges against the pastor in exchange for the U.S. government dropping fines totaling billions of dollars against the bank. A senior White House official said the offer was rejected. A real NATO ally wouldn't have arrested Brunson in the first place, the official told the journal. And on this day in 2000, Tiger Woods won the PGA Championship in a playoff over Bob May, becoming the first player since Ben Hogan in 1950 to win three majors in one year. Oh, how the mighty have since fallen. And in 1964, on this day, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Economic Opportunity Act, a nearly $1 billion anti-poverty measure. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 17 minutes after 4 o'clock. We'll be back. 22 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and currency. Well, in a special ceremony at the White House today, the President honored two agencies, Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Customs and Border Protection, call their members incredibly brave patriots who keep America safe. The Salute to the Heroes event took place uh, with two agencies at the center of a national debate over how to handle the influx of families and unaccompanied children at the U.S.-Mexico border. America is a land of opportunities because we are a nation of laws, the President said. For America to be strong, a strong nation, we must be strong borders, We must have strong borders. The president took aim at opponents, including Democratic leaders and immigration advocacy groups of tougher uh, border enforcement. He uh, portrayed them as uh, not grounded in the reality that control of immigration at the borders and the interior is critical to law and order and security. He called them open border extremists who have no courage, they have no guts, and they just have uh, big, loud mouths, I'm quoting. The president highlighted important achievements that agents of both ICE and CBP had accomplished including rescuing 78 smuggled uh, smuggled immigrants found inside a locked refrigerator tractor trailer at a border checkpoint earlier this month, arresting more than 100,000 criminals, refusing entry to roughly 10 known or suspected terrorists each day, and a single operation Uh, arresting more than 300 members of the brutal MS-13 gang. You are the patriots and you are the heroes, the president said to the room full of agents. You keep us safe and you keep us free. I'm honored every single day to serve as your commander-in-chief. I will never leave your side. I will never leave the fight. Thank you for your service, he said. You are truly incredible people. The president also blamed Democrats for making it difficult to change policies and laws that create sanctuary cities and discourage local officials, including police, from working with ICE, but he expressed uh, confidence, uh, stricter measures would be passed and implemented. In addition to representatives from ICE and CBP, members of the National Sheriff's Association attended that event. A law enforcement official who attended said that he wanted to show his support and gratitude to ICE and CBP, saying uh, they uh, help keep our community in Massachusetts safer. ICE plays a critical value in our communities, working in concert with us and making sure people arrested by local police don't get released back into the local communities, putting our citizens at risk and law enforcement at risk trying to track them down. This was a quote from Bristol County Massachusetts Sheriff Thomas Hodgson. There are thousands of people in our prison are um, uh, are in uh, their under false identities. They are gangs Hodgson says. ICE helps us identify people who don't uh, uh, we don't know are wanted by them uh, who may have uh, come back illegally into the country several t- several times and who uh, don't know are a danger to our community. So the tribute took place today and of course that was frustrating to ICE critics. Well, President Trump declared his administration the most transparent in history on Saturday, saying his White House staff has supplied more than a million pages of information to Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. In a Twitter message on Saturday evening, the president said he allowed White House Attorney Don McGahn and others on the White House staff to fully cooperate with Mueller in a bid to show there was no collusion and no obstruction. The president's message followed reports that McGahn had spoken with investigators from Mueller's investigative team multiple times, up to 30 hours. The revelation came amid a New York Times report citing multiple sources indicating that McGahn willingly spoke to the team members who were looking into, among other things, whether President Trump obstructed justice for 30 hours over the course of at least three separate occasions. He reportedly gave insight into Trump's demeanor regarding Mueller's investigation. The special counsel is investigating alleged Russian meddling and potential collusion with the Trump campaign associates in the 2016 presidential election. And Newt Gingrich says that Mueller has made a fatal mistake. We'll see whether or not that's an accurate assessment. There is now no excuse, he writes, uh, no excuse for special counsel Robert Mueller to ask to interview President Trump. In fact, it's now clear the investigation has been given so much information about the president's actions and had such remarkably open access, they should just close shop and write their final report. They no longer have any grounds for going to court to get subpoenas to compel the president to testify. Mueller's fatal mistake, according to Gingrich, was revealed on Saturday in the New York Times story titled White House Counsel Don McCann has cooperated extensively in Mueller's inquiry. Uh, Michael Schmidt and Maggie Haberman reported that there were at least 30 hours of interviews between the Mueller team and the White House counsel. Um, We are now at the end of the failed investigation. Newt Gingrich goes on to, uh, to, to suggest accepting such a thorough and detailed briefing from the White House counsel will ultimately hurt the efforts of Mueller's team. Um, of left-wing Democratic lawyers as he describes them. McGann is a very widely respected lawyer who thoroughly understands the difference between legal and illegal behavior, uh, and he was uh, in the room for virtually all of the president's activities. It couldn't be more clear, Gingrich concludes, the Trump White House was comfortable taking, a rather talking for 30 hours with a pack of high-powered, very tough-minded investigators because the president has done nothing wrong. Nevertheless, at every stage, Mueller has conducted an aggressive one-sided an increasingly irresponsible investigation, he goes on to say. Now, whether or not he is satisfied with the 30 hours with the White House counsel remains to be seen. Uh, Newt Gingrich suggests that that means he has no need to speak to the president. My guess is Mueller may not see it quite that way. We'll just have to wait and see. In other news, National Security Advisor John Bolton on Sunday suggested that former CIA Director John Brennan might have misused classified information and that the unprecedented leaks from the administration may prompt broader charges, or rather changes, in how security clearances are handled. Bolton was in Israel for the first time as a Trump administration official to discuss national security issues with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other top officials. Whether Brennan actually used classified information, I think people will be able to determine – But I think that's a serious problem, Bolton said. There is a line, and I think it's clear some people have crossed it. Uh, My opinion is that he was publicizing, uh, or rather politicizing intelligence, Bolton added, saying Brennan had failed to keep intact the wall of separation between intelligence and policy. Host Martha Raddatz ultimately challenged Bolton. You're not sure whether John uh, John Brennan used classified information. You have no specific examples. Bolton replied, I think a number of people have commented that Brennan couldn't be in the position he is in of criticizing President Trump and his so-called collusion with Russia unless he did use classified information, but I don't know the specifics, end quote. Well, President Trump revoked Brennan's security clearance on Wednesday, saying he had politicized his security clearance and misled Congress about CIA spying in the Senate. And as I mentioned uh, earlier in the first segment of today's program, uh, during the Obama administration, there had been calls for his security clearance to be lifted. At that time, it was not done, but the Washington Post in particular had called for his uh, security clearance to be lifted. Uh, removed. Um, it's interesting, down the road now, um, they're criticizing this president for having done just that, even though it's not necessary as a civilian to have it. A former um C.I.A. Uh, Director John Brennan risked damaging the intelligence community with his anti-Trump comments. That's a, an assessment from retired Admiral Michael Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, speaking to Fox News Sunday. Mullen's comments came as several former intelligence officials appeared on Sunday talk shows, including Brennan, who floated the possibility of taking legal action against the president. I think John's an extraordinary servant of the country, but I think he has been incredibly critical of the president. And I think that has put him in a political place, which actually does does, not, does more damage for the intelligence community, which is apolitical, Mullen went on to say. Brennan had publicly accused the president of treason after his summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin this summer in Helsinki, Finland, and he's repeatedly lambasted the president with Twitter posts that critics have charged improperly hint at classified inf- insider information about the ongoing Russian probe. Uh, however, Mullen added that Trump's decision to revoke Brennan's security clearance last week raised significant concerns in. and of itself. Uh, The White House announced Wednesday that the president had revoked Brennan's security clearance and the first decision uh, to come from a review of access for several top Obama-era intelligence and law enforcement officials. And we are being uh, advised that this will not be the last to have that security clearance lifted. 31 minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jack Deere. Even in our darkness, the story of beauty and a broken life. We're back thirty-seven minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jack Deere, Even in Our Darkness, the Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. That's coming up at about a quarter after the five o'clock, the top of the five o'clock hour. Well, the landscape of presidential nominee coverage is uh, littered with examples of picks who withered under political and media scrutiny like Harriet Myers and under George W. Bush and Tom Daschle under Barack Obama. Yet a string of would-be media hits on President Trump's Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh have pretty much fizzled on impact, doing little to dent his image and in some cases backfiring on the news outlets that publish them. Well, this includes articles exposing, in quotes, um, how he spent big bucks on baseball games and most Most recently, a detailed New Yorker analysis of his uh, college sports reporting three decades ago, which quotes one academic somehow asserting that Kavanaugh's college basketball articles showed he would endorse unlimited presidential power under Trump. Wow, that's uh, a definition of desperation, it would seem. To conservatives, the stories uh, speak to a still-struggling effort to smear an otherwise qualified nominee. Going forward, uh, says a conservative strategist Chris Barron, going forward, this sad smear campaign sets a troubling precedent for future nominees, regardless of who the president is. Uh, the New York Times added to the list when it published a recent story on how internal emails show Kavanaugh helped the Bush administration's effort to win Senate confirmation for one of Mr. Bush's Most disputed judicial nominees, despite testifying in 2006 that nominee Charles Pickering Sr. was not one of the judicial nominees that I was primarily handling. Well, the piece reflected Democratic questions of whether Kavanaugh had misled the Senate. However, National Review's David French contacted Pickering, who said the Times did not try to contact him before its report, and further, he didn't remember interacting with Kavanaugh even once during the confirmation fight. He said in a statement, while I work with attorneys in the White House Counsel's Office, I cannot recall a single interaction with Brett Kavanaugh about my judicial nomination. I do not even remember knowing his name at the time. His 2006 testimony is accurate. Well, the Daily Wire published a story mocking the Times for the report, writing sarcastically that uh, they really got Kavanaugh this time. Combine this uh, with his purchase of baseball tickets and love of beer, and they might just take this guy down, the column said, again, tongue in cheek. This was a reference to some other recent hits on Kavanaugh that left barely a scuff. Well, last month, the Washington Post was mocked for a report that Kavanaugh uh, racked up credit card debt on Washington Nationals baseball tickets, even though he paid off the bill. The paper um, honed in on Kavanaugh uh, incurring tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt, buying baseball tickets over the past decade, and uh, waited until the fourth paragraph to mention that he had paid the bill. ProPublica then um, uh, took things a step further last week, soliciting uh, readers to help figure out who attended the games with a headline, Did you go to a Washington Nationals game with Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh? The Bizarre Post has the... Uh, uh, subhead, Trump's pick is a baseball fan who racked up considerable debt-buying season tickets. Uh, help us figure out who went with the nominated judge. Ooh, a tell-all. Hope, it seems, springs eternal in a newsroom where with a political... Uh, agenda. National Review's Thomas Jipping wrote in reaction to the ProPublica piece. NewsBusters managing editor Curtis Houck said that ProPublica's uh, piece should go in the dictionary under what a fishing expedition looks like. Uh, then there's the New York, uh, the New Yorker's newly published deep dive on college sports articles. Kavanaugh wrote for the Yale Daily News in the mid 1980s, searching for clues to how he might rule on crucial issues. Well, this might be uh, somewhat laughable, but when the hearings begin in early September, I doubt that there'll be much to laugh about because the long knives will be out during this uh, confirmation process. Well, President Trump has a new record since uh, entering the White House in January of 2016. He's had 24 judicial nominees confirmed to the federal appellate bench by the U.S. Senate. That's the highest number of federal appellate court judges ever confirmed during a president's first two years in office. Now, what do these new judges mean for the future of American law? Well, it depends on the judge, of course. Court of, uh, court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in November of 2017, among her past uh, Joan Larson, uh, rather, Uh, Among her uh, past writings is a strong defense of executive power, including the use of presidential signing statements by her old boss, President George W. Bush. If circumstances arose in which the law would prevent him from protecting the nation, she wrote, summarizing the uh, thrust of one such signing statement, Bush would choose the nation over the statute. In other words, Larson defended Bush for claiming the unilateral authority to ignore the text of the very statute he had just signed into law. This suggests that Judge Larson will be inclined to vote in favor of of expansive uh, theories of executive power while on the Sixth Circuit. Uh, circuit rather, Trump's appellate court picks also include some explicit critics of libertarian uh, legal thinking. Amy Coney Barrett, for example, who was confirmed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in October of last year, has faulted the libertarian legal scholar Randy Barnett for championing a theory of economic liberty that she considers to be unsupported by the text of the Constitution. Th- furthermore, she's argued in support of the Supreme Court's current approach in economic regulatory cases in which the regulation at issue is judged under the high Deferential rationale basis test. In Barrett's view, the deferential judicial review of um, run of the mill legislation makes sense because it's consistent with the reality that the harm inflicted by the Supreme Court's erroneous interference in the democratic process is harder to remedy than the harm inflicted by an ill advised statute. Along similar lines, uh, Kevin Newsom, who was uh, confirmed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in August of last year, has argued that the federal courts have no business protecting economic liberty from state regulation. Now, This view led Newsom to praise the Supreme Court's 1873 ruling in the Slaughterhouse Cases for its judicial restraint, its rejection of the constitutionalization of laissez-faire economic theory, and its conclusion that the 14th Amendment did not safeguard economic liberties against state interference. Well, Trump's picks are not all bad news for libertarians. However, Don Willett, who was confirmed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in December of last year, has characterized slaughterhouse as wrongly decided because the 14th Amendment does not or rather does indeed contain judicially enforceable protections for the right to earn a living free from unreasonable government intrusion. As for the sort of judicial deference praised by Newsom, Barrett and other like minded conservatives, Willett countered majorities don't possess an un." Trammeled right to trammel." Well for better or for worse these are these new judges are going to leave a mark on the judicial bench and the judicial branch. Keep in mind that the US Supreme Court only decides around 75 cases each term while the federal appellate courts handle thousands most of which are of course never reviewed by the Supreme Court of the United States. For all practical purposes federal appellate judges often preside over the real courts of last resort. So he has appointed more of them in his first two years than any previous administration. And here's a bit of news you're not going to read in the headlines in most papers around the country. A new poll released on Wednesday last from Rasmussen Reports revealed that President Donald Trump's approval rating in the black community is exploding, almost doubling for from a year ago. The poll showed that nationally, the president's job approval rating is split with 49% approving, 49% disapproving. When it comes to how black voters felt about Trump, Rasmussen found a surprising 36% approved of the president's job performance. Even as mainstream news outlets have ratcheted up racially charged coverage of the president, uh, a rather interesting uh, and telling poll. The poll comes after fired White House staffer Amarosa Manigold Newman was, has cast the president as a racist in multiple media interviews, claiming that a tape of Trump exists where he uses the N-word. However, no hard evidence of that alleged tape has come to light, and the Associated Press reported uh, that many black Americans do not see her as a credible source. Well, a report from earlier this year that was featured in The Atlantic revealed that Trump's support from the black community had doubled from approximately 8 percent in 2016 to 17 percent earlier this year. And that has apparently risen to 36 percent as of mid last week. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about Americans in this great economy are continuing to pile on the debt that potential economic impact of America's mounting debt, something to think about. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Okay, we're back 50 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. economy may be on the upswing, but many of us are still piling up the debt faster than we're saving. According to Northwestern Mutual's 2018 planning and progress study, the average personal debt climbed higher than $38,000. Americans were also more likely to accrue between five dollars to $25,000 worth of debt. Than savings last year, with about 33 percent having added an amount within that range uh, to their debt levels versus 17 percent who saved. And while 20 percent of people allocate half of their income toward debt repayment, one in 10 Americans surveyed said that they expected to be in debt for the rest of their lives. That's sort of a dreary prospect. Only 23% of people claimed to carry no debt, down 5 percentage points from 2017. The main sources of debt were credit cards and mortgages, which each made up an average of 25% of an individual's debt. And while student loans uh, comprised rather 6% of the average debt total for millennials, it was up... To 28%. Meanwhile, dining and nightlife topped the list of discretionary items uh, consumers were spending money on at 15% of overall expenditures. Hobbies, clothing, personal care all tried uh, for second at 13% each, followed by leisure travel. Yet despite rising levels of debt, 56% of respondents said debt had little impact on their ability to achieve their financial uh, responsibilities. Let's just hope the bubble doesn't burst. Well, President uh, Tayyip Erdogan appealed to uh, Turks' religious and patriotic feelings ahead of the uh, major Muslim holiday today, promising they would never be brought to their knees by an economic crisis that has battered the uh, lira currency. The lira has uh, tumbled some 40% this year, hit by uh, worries about Erdogan's influence over monetary policy and a worsening diplomatic rift with the United States. The sell-off has spread to other emerging markets, uh, market currency rather, and global stocks in recent weeks, highlighting the increased tensions. The U.S. embassy in the Turkish capital Ankara came under brief gunfire early on Monday, but uh, unknown assailants in an attack condemned by Erdogan's spokesman as a bid to create chaos. Nobody was hurt. The person was later detained. In a pre-recorded address to mark the four-day Eid al-Adha festival, which starts uh, on Tuesday, Erdogan, a pious Muslim, sounded a characteristically defiant note as he lashed out at those selling the lira. The attack on our economy has absolutely no difference uh, from attacks on our uh, call to prayer or our flag, the goal is the same. The goal is to bring Turkey and the Turkish people to their knees, to its uh, to take prisoners. Erdogan said in a television address. Those who think they can make Turkey give in with the exchange rate will soon set their uh, uh, see that they are mistaken. And by the way, Turkey's economy is uh, very precarious at this point. Well, an ISIS fighter who posed as a refugee to get into the United States was arrested in California by FBI agents this past week. Before his detainment, 45-year-old Omar Amin was uh, wanted for the murder of an Iraqi police officer, and officials allege he engaged in a number of terrorist activities in his home country. After entering the United States as a refugee, Amin attempted to obtain legal status to stay in the United States. He originally, um, of Rawah in the Anbar province of Iraq, fled Iraq following the alleged murder and later Uh, settled in uh, Sacramento as a purported refugee. It's alleged that Amin's family supported and assisted the installation of an al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Rawah, and that Amin was a member of uh, AQI and ISIS, the Justice Department uh, released. It's also alleged that he um, participated in various activities in support of those terrorist organizations, including helping to plant improvised explosive devices and committing the murder that is the subject of an extradition request. Amin concealed his membership in those terrorist groups, when he applied for refugee status, and later when he applied for a green card in the United States, he appeared before a federal judge on Wednesday and is awaiting extradition to Iraq, where he will stand trial. The Iraqi arrested, uh, arrest warrant, rather, an extradition request, alleged that after the town of Rawah Iraq, fell to the Islamic State of Iraq and al Sham or ISIS in uh, June of 2014, I Amin mean, entered the, the town with a caravan of ISIS vehicles and drove to the house of the victim, who had served as an officer in the uh, Rawah Police Department on the evening of June the 22nd of 2014. After the caravan arrived at the victim's house, Amin and other members of the convoy allegedly opened fire on the victim. He then allegedly fired his weapon at the victim while the victim was on the ground ultimately killing him. Well, the Department of Homeland Security has issued warnings in the past about ISIS fighters posing as refugees in order to infiltrate Europe and the United States. Last year, DHS acknowledged 300 refugees were under investigation for potential ties to terrorism. In other words, for just that. Well, two days after the State Department reiterated that uh, U.S. forces will remain in Syria until the enduring defeat of ISIS, a spokesman for the U.S.-led anti-ISIS coalition made a similar commitment regarding Iraq. Uh, we'll keep troops there in Iraq as long as uh, we think they're needed. Uh, Reuters quoted Colonel Sean Ryan as telling reporters at the U.S. Embassy in Abu Dhabi, the main reason after ISIS is defeated militarily is the stabilization efforts, and we still need to be there for that. So that's one of the reasons we we'll Will maintain a presence. He went on to say there are currently five um, there were fifty two hundred U.S. troops in Iraq and around two thousand in Syria. NATO leader, leaders, rather, at their recent summit in Brussels, agreed to set up a non combat training mission there uh, in a bid to prevent the Sunni jihadists of Iraq of ISIS, rather, uh, and to better equip uh, their own troops and prevent the uh, Sunni jihadists of ISIS or similar terrorist groups from emerging. So the U.S. will remain in both places at least for the short term. Meanwhile, Venezuelan president Nicolas Maduro, he carried out one of the greatest currency devaluations in history over the weekend, a 95 percent plunge that will test the capacity of an already beleaguered population to stomach even more pain. One likely outcome is that inflation, which already has uh, was forecast to reach one million percent this year, will get fresh fuel from the measures. Prices are currently rising at an annualized rate of one hundred and eight thousand percent, according to Bloomberg's Café con leche index a massive exodus of venezuelans fleeing the crisis to neighboring countries will likely increase and with it tensions and restrictions like the ones seen over the past few days well, the official rate for the currency will go from 285000 per dollar to 6 million a shock that officials tried to partly offset by raising a minimum wage 3500% to the equivalent of 30 dollars A month. And while Maduro boasted in Friday night's announcement that the International Monetary Fund wasn't involved in the policies, um, aspects of the moves bore a resemblance to a classic orthodox economic adjustment, albeit with some confusing twists. Maduro's new strategy for managing the economy is a desperate response after years of disastrous policies that undercut. Uh, Growth sent prices soaring and turned what had once been one of Latin America's wealthiest countries into a dysfunctional nation that spawned a refugee crisis. Pressure is mounting on him to right the ship as calls for his overthrow grow six years after he took over for the late Hugo Chavez. Earlier this month, Maduro started a fresh crackdown on his opponents after a failed attempt to assassinate him used an aerial drone. The economic shock measure demonstrate the government's willingness to do what it takes to stay in power. Raul Galagos, uh, an associate director at Control Risks, uh, said from Bogota, Maduro looks vulnerable. Clearly, something could happen. Well, something uh, will happen, that's certain. The streets of Caracas looked mostly empty on Monday morning as Venezuelans continue to digest the news and the impact it's going to have on their savings. Many shops, including supermarkets, were closed. Some businesses that opened were waiting for more details to adjust their prices. So the drama continues um, in Venezuela. Well, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Jack Deere. He is the author of Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. Now, the name may be familiar to some of you. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, After a series of uh, tragedies, he discovered a relationship with God that he had not known prior to that suffering. We'll talk about that with him in just a few moments. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. On the morning of December 31st in the year 2000, my next guest writes that I watched a white cardboard coffin travel up a conveyor belt into the belly of a Boeing 757 along with other baggage. The body in that coffin had belonged to my son, but he had gambled with it once too often. Well, thus opens the memoir of bestselling author, pastor, and professor, Jack Deere. Even in our darkness, a story of beauty in a broken life. Uh, He confronts the question of where God is when your life falls apart, not from the distance of a successful writer, theologian, or minister, but from the center of suffering and loss. Some of you are very familiar with that place. Well, he sold more than 300,000 books in the late 1990s and then stopped publishing. Here he reveals where he's been for the last 20 some years in a season of loss and turmoil. The litany of tragedy includes the drug addiction and suicide of his son, his wife turning to alcohol to cope with her grief and shame and his inability to see the damage his pride inflicted on those closest to him. It's an unsanitized version of the Christian life, he says, truly the only version that exists. Well, the heart of the book is not about suffering, but about finding a friendship with God, feeling loved by God and being able to enjoy God. Suffering is one of the tools that God uses to deepen our friendship with him, he says. And I've, ha- I've had pain I did not deserve. I never had pain I did not need. Well, Jack Deere is a writer and lecturer who speaks uh, throughout the world. Formerly, he was an assistant professor of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary for more than 10 years until he was fired in 1987 for reversing his stance on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He had come to believe that the gifts such as healing and prophecy are accessible today. The experience became the basis of his best-selling books, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit and Surprised by the Voice of God. He has uh, spent... um, uh, then rather, spent four years uh, with John Wimber of the Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Anaheim, California, and went on to pastor other churches. He and his wife, Lisa, currently live in St. Louis. They are the parents of Stephen, Elise, and their late son, Scott Deer. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, again, the title of that book, Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a difficult book, but it's one that um, is—it needed to be written, and it inspires us to consider the challenges that life brings in perhaps a a different way. You're very candid, not only about the events of your life, but about uh, your own heart, even though you were at the height of of your career and uh, were highly respected as an author um, and speaker and pastor. Uh, Why was this memoir and its... um, rawness, if you will, important to write for you? Well, for a
2: couple of reasons. Um, the first part of my life I spent relating to God as though what he really wanted more than anything else was obedience. And and, it's, and when you think that, it's hard not to think of God in terms of obligation. And, and that makes for a really unsatisfying life. And I was, I'd probably been a Christian for uh, maybe 20 years bef- before I... Really came to grips with that famous text in John 15 15, where Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And when I started praying to be a friend of God, my life started changing. My spiritual life started changing. The essence of friendship, for any of us who've had a best friend, the essence is not service, it's pleasure. We have this unique chemistry with our best friend. And we have a joy when we're with that friend that we don't experience with someone else. And in, in that joy, there, there, comes a, a spontaneous accountability, um, in, in, obligation sort of snuffs out or, or at least it limits that, that pleasure a lot. So I began, begin to pray that I would become, uh, a best friend of the Lord Jesus. And I began to feel his pleasure in me, have different experiences of that and, and began to enjoy him at a new level. And I searched for 10 years, uh, for a way to write about that. And, and, uh, Everything I wrote after the death of my son just came out like this lifeless cliche. I couldn't, I, I just couldn't find something that was satisfying to me, and I ended up going into a rehab per, for uh, my anger uh, issues. And in that, in that rehab, I had an amazing experience and uh, started writing again. So that, that's that's the purpose of the book. It's to explain how how a person goes from being a Christian to actually coming to a place where we enjoy God. And in the process of that, uh, our sins don't go away. Um, in fact, sometimes we, get, we become more aware of our sins.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, wh- so the reason I'm candid about my sins is in my earlier days as a pastor, I used to stand on a stage and describe this life, this Christian life, that nobody really lived. It was an idealized version of the Christian life. And I presented a version of myself that didn't exist. And I've come to see what I was actually doing in those days is I was teaching people to go underground with their sin uh, because they're not going to admit. They don't live that idealized version. Um, and, and, and I'm presenting that as normal, so they must be subnormals. So they're not going to admit their sin. They're going to go underground with it. And when we take our sins underground, that's where they flourish. Um, 50% of the power of the most evil stuff in us is broken once we just confess it to someone who loves us. So that's why I try to be as honest as I can about the sins and things that my wife and I struggled with.
1: And you're right, there is something very freeing about that kind of honesty that encourages readers to have an honest relationship with God, um, as you have uh, since discovered. You describe your your early life as a childhood transformed by violence and abandonment. Uh, The Rages of uh, an Unhappy Mother and a Suicidal Father, or a Father Who Committed Suicide. Uh, So your your early years uh, were transformed from a happy life to one that is characterized by an unhappy life. Tell us a little bit about your background growing up.
2: Yeah, so uh, my dad was my hero. Um, He was a World War II hero. He was a chief petty officer, wounded. He taught hand-to-hand combat. He knew the answer to every single question I ever asked him. He was a reader, although he was raised on a farm in Mississippi during the Depression. Uh, he was my hero in, in so many ways. My mom was beautiful, and uh, I never saw her read a reader book, but in those early, uh, early days, I'd say up until I was about six years old, I remember her being so gentle and kind. And, uh, and in about six years of age, uh, my parents went to war, and I didn't understand what had happened. Uh, and I have two younger brothers, and then a baby sister came along, and mom's rage uh, was just uncontrollable, and dad became more and more absentee, and the more absentee she came, the angrier she got, and the more critical she got, and uh, and she took that rage out, started taking that rage out on us, and eventually, uh, she called them spankings, but eventually, she gave us regular uh, beatings, and you you. And the, the rules for the engagement our home was like a battlefield with unknowable rules for engagement she, there would be sweetness and she would be the den mother of our cub scout thing uh, minute and the next minute she's violent and she's beating us with rosebush which is and never an saying you're going to get 10 swats or whatever just beating us until uh, uh until her rage baited until until uh, all the anger was gone and uh, my parents not only had no christian friends they had no friends. Um, traumatic homes, sick, sick homes, they don't, sick homes don't have uh, friends. They have secrets. And so nobody actually knew what was going on in our, uh, in our home. And, and the kids couldn't explain it. We just learned to adjust to it. And it I had anger that was put into me uh, in those early days uh, and, a, and a sense of perfectionism like my mom. And uh, I didn't know that. It, it, even in my adult life, I, didn't, I, I thought my past was irrelevant to my adult life. And so I spent so much of my the first part of my adult life in anger and in perfectionism, uh, the things that make people around you really unhappy.
1: You write that in high school you dabbled in shoplifting, drinking, troublemaking, but shortly after your 17th birthday, a friend by the name of Bruce uh, shared Jesus with you and you came to a saving faith in, in Jesus Christ.
2: Yeah, I had uh, it w- there was a circle of eight of us. We were all athletes except for Bruce, uh, but Bruce was the smart guy in the group, and he's the guy that knew more about sex than anybody else. He had older sisters, and uh, so that's what what kept Bruce in the in the game and in there with us. He was kind of like the fount of sexual knowledge for us. and And in the summer before our sophomore year, he chased a blonde named Dixie. Uh, to church camp, and he didn't catch Dixie. He caught Southern Baptist Hellfire Damnation Religion. And so we kicked Bruce out of our group, and uh, he prayed for me every day for 18 months. I didn't know that, uh, but he considered me his best friend. And so for every day for 18 months he prayed for me. December eighteenth, 1965, he invited me to spend the night at his house, and if I would spend the night at his house, he would introduce me to these two new beautiful girls from Paschal High School. That's Fort Worth's famous high school, wealthy on the west side. And uh, so I did. And that night, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I don't know why I asked him this question. We were both in, in beds uh, uh, falling asleep. I asked him, how you get to heaven? And he said, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. That was the first time I ever heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And you say, how do you live in the Bible Belt and I get that message? Well, I had no Christian friends. We never went to church. Um, there wasn't religious TV. I didn't know anything about Christian books. So, And my teachers didn't talk about uh, the Lord or, or uh, religion or Christianity. So that was the first time I ever heard that Jesus died on the cross for me. And then Bruce said, if you will trust him to forgive you, he will give you a new life and come into your heart and never leave again. And uh, I said, that can't be true. And Bruce says, oh, yeah, it's true. When you're 17 years old and everyone you've ever loved has left you to hear that uh, the greatest person in the world, uh, the perfect person in the world won't leave you, it's just too good to be true. And I ask him, how, how do you know that? And he quoted Jesus' words, John 10:28. It was the first verse of Scripture I ever heard where Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And I was instantly born again when I heard that word. I could not have told you I was born again. I had zero Christian vocabulary. It's repentance, salvation, confession, none of, born again, none of that stuff was in my vocabulary. All I did was when, when I heard he would never leave me, when I heard that promise, I just said in my heart, I'm coming over to you, God. And, and that was the night I was born again. And about two or three days later, I told Bruce about it. He came running over to my house, stuck a King James Bible under my nose, took me through the Sermon on the Mount and said, here, read this. And I've been reading the Bible ever since. Mm-hmm.
1: That's an encouragement for anyone who's praying for a friend. Now, you write of yourself that from the start, your faith was marked by hypocrisy and pride, that you were oblivious to the underlying truth of what Jesus said. Uh, so your, your life wasn't maturing in a way that uh, one would hope. Uh, talk about the early days of your faith and how that impacted your, your relationships, your marriage, and ultimately your family.
2: Well, it, 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 there was a mixture of, of uh, good and bad. There was a childlike quality to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, uh, so I'm a fabulous boy. I've got no model, no role model of any man I want to be like, except the killers in the movies that I watched back in those. Clint Eastwood and Sean Connery, Steve McQueen. And so three months after I became a Christian, a young life leader named Scott Manley came into my life. We didn't have a young life of my high school bet I'm in the church that I went to and he became like my best friend my spiritual father um, and, he, and he taught me he, he did just what Jesus did for uh, the apostles I, I often ask people um, the only person who never needed any help chose 12 helpers why did he do it and the answer is for the pleasure it gave him to love those 12 men to teach them to love the things he loved So they would have a life that could count for all eternity. And that's what Scott Manley did for me. He loved me, and he taught me to love the things he loved. So he taught me how to memorize scripture. He taught me how to memorize books of the Bible by uh, giving the paragraphs in in each book, three-word title, memorizing the titles, and then thinking your way through the book. He taught me how to lead people to Christ. He taught me how to tell my story. Then he taught me how to give messages. And one of the greatest things he ever did for me is he put C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters in my hand when I was 17 years old, and he said, let's read this together, see what you think of And And that was a transforming experience. I'd never read a Christian book before, and I became a C.S. Lewis devotee, uh, and it just totally uh, changed my life. I ended up being a philosophy major. So th- those were, and, and there was sweetness with God, and, and uh, I became a young life leader, led lots of kids to Christ. That's, that's the good side. The bad side is. I knew that I knew more scripture than even uh, men in the church um, I, c- I could argue uh, with with philosophy professors and in and college and, and hold my own or hold my own in the argument with a, a scientific group. My life club grew up to be two hundred and fifty kids on a monday night and so I, I look around and I see that you know i am uh, I stand out in that group and so there 's this kind of pride and in superiority instead of thinking this is all a gift from God, that Scott Manley was this major gift from God, and that God had given me a mind that could do Greek and Hebrew, I started thinking this is my discipline, or, or this part of me that thought that, that it was my discipline. And so this kind of pride that I had felt as a child growing up, I just I took over mom's anger, her sense of entitlement. Um, and so, I, so it's like, it's not that I was devoid of love or devoid of affection, um, but uh, I, I, my harshness so often hurt people. People would say, Jack, that's so harsh. And I go, no, I'm just telling you the truth in love. You're just oversensitive. Hmm. And, that, uh, and, and the other good thing about me is I always had one or two best friends that, that I loved uh, with all my heart and that we could tell each other our secrets. So there's this mixture of pride and arrogance and harshness with kind of like a childlike heart, somebody that really does value deep relationships, does value ministry and help. I just I just took hundreds of kids and taught them to love what I love. So if you went to Richland Hills High School back in the late 60s or early 70s, you would see kids carrying C.S. Lewis books under their uh, under their arms with their school books, uh, navigator scripture verses in their, in their pocket, and I referred to my kids in the, principal made me the pastor of the school. I, I, the nurse gave me her office to counsel in. I could actually get a kid out of class and, uh, for, for a, a private uh, meeting. I had carte blanche uh, uh, access to the school, lunches and football practices, basketball practices, and, and so on. So there's a mixture of yeah. really good and really bad stuff uh, in me.
1: Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Jack Deere. His latest book, Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment.
2: Men, there's a life-changing adventure Ahead for you this September One that inspires you to meet the challenges Of being a father, a husband, or a single guy It's Men's Roundup 2018 This year's speaker, Matt Michelados Uses humor and biblical truths To inspire you to grow and reach others for Christ Enjoy music from Consumed by Fire Paul Wright and Rapture Ruckus There will be action workshops And fun Camp Tadmore activities Men's Roundup starts September 7th Sign up at mensroundup.com
3: That's Men's Roundup dot com.
1: story of beauty in a broken life. Now, as you described your young Christian life, by any measure, by any standard, you were a successful uh, young man in terms of walking out your faith in a way that was influencing others. But the title of your book is Even in Our Darkness, and obviously there were events that took place later in life that really challenged you to the core. Let's start where you begin in the book, and as I read earlier, it's with the, uh, the death of your son, and things began to, to crumble for you and your family.
2: Yeah, so everything, I mean, if you look at my life from the time, just outwardly, from the time it was 17 to 52, virtually everything I touched turned to gold. At 17, I don't know a single uh, verse of scripture. At 27, I'm a professor of Old Testament exegesis and Semitic languages at Dallas Seminary, and I can teach Greek equally well. Uh, I start a, uh, a church during that time, and a lot of the aristocracy of the city comes to it. That church is still in existence and just last Easter I think they had twelve or fourteen thousand people there. I can't re- I can't remember. And then I got this beautiful family, this sunny, beautiful wife, sweet, kind, three adorable uh, kids. I end up getting fired from the seminary and then I get promoted uh to, to, to be the right hand of John Wimber, who was one of the he in the eighties and the nineties, you would see him on the cover of Christian magazines. Mm-hmm. He was one of the ones. One of the most well known figures in the Christian world during that time. And I travel around the world and I meet all kinds of leaders with him and, uh, have this incredible experience. I end up in Montana on top of a mountain, this, this stunningly beautiful place, writing books that get translated into 12, 14 languages, sell all around the world. Uh, I travel all around the world, first class speaking at conferences. So I'm, that's from 17 to 52. a really, Happy, fulfilled life, in spite of the things that are wrong within me, and the one, the one uh, bad spot in our life is our second-born son, Scott, our blonde-haired charmer, who was the life of every party he was ever in. Um, he could make us laugh more than anybody else. Had movie star looks. He got into drugs when he was uh, when he was thirteen, and I pr- and I prayed for him more than I prayed for any other person. And, and for 10 years, we were in that drug battle. He, he was in rehab for part of the time at seven months. And he would, he, he would get clean for a while. And he was clean for most of his 19th year. It was just an incredible uh, time. But on December, uh, December 27, 2000, he went out with his girlfriend that night. Or actually, it was actually the 26th at night. He went out with his uh, girlfriend, got some drugs, Came back to our home and uh, shot himself about five o'clock in the morning with a forty-four uh, magnum. They found five different substances in his body, and not none of them in themselves are lethal. But when you mix them, they form a lethal cocktail that uh, causes a psychotic break. And when that happened, I, uh, uh, I heard the shot. It's about five o'clock in the morning. I was deep in sleep. I woke up and I didn't hear anything else. And I thought, huh, ah, I must be dreaming. And later that morning I, I was up working on my next book and uh, I opened the door to his room. There was a noise, a broken DVD player that was malfunctioning. I opened the door and saw what no parent should ever see. Mm. Uh, my my wife, my son, and my daughter and I gathered around his body and we said, we're going to pray for the Lord to bring him back to life until the Lord brings him back to life or until a police come and make us leave. And so, I held his shattered head in my hands and, and, and prayed for 30 minutes, all, all of us did, until the police came and made us leave, and uh, that was the worst day of my life, and I didn't know this then, but when the worst day of your life comes, it's only the beginning of bad. You're going to be dragged through so much more worse uh, things before you begin to come up for air and live in the light again.
1: This had to have been devastating for your family. The grief was too much for your wife, and she spiraled into a very dark place as well. At this point, how did you cry out to God? Was it anger? Was it—did uh, you feel exposed that what I have in my relationship with God is insufficient to carry me through this? How did your faith—how was your faith impacted at this point in your family grief?
2: You know, uh it, in some ways, everything was impacted. So uh, I prayed more for my son than I ever prayed for anyone else. So, I think, so now I'm thinking, why pray? What's the point of praying? I mean, I, my mind knows better, but I'm just that's where I am on my feeling level. But by this time, I mean, God has done so much for me. I would have been dead before I was 21 had God not stepped into my life and rearranged it. I was that reckless, that careless, that wild. And so I know in my heart of hearts, the only hope I have is God. I can't figure out why he let this happen. I'm watching uh, Lisa. uh, I thought she was going to die of insanity. I thought she was going to fall into this abyss of grief and end up losing her mind. For months, uh, she cried herself to sleep uh, every night, sometimes an hour and a half. and, And sometimes she would just say, I miss Scotty. I miss Scotty. I don't think I can live without Scotty. And this might go on for uh for an hour. Um so Pat, here's somebody yesterday yesterday in fact, I was in a church in Perdosa Springs, Colorado, and someone was asking me, what happens me? what do you say to someone whose child has committed suicide? And, and uh I said, you don't it's not what you say to them. There's no paradigm for this. But God himself will come uh in amazing ways. So I'll I'll just tell you one story. Um that demonstrates what he did for me over and over and over. He did not take away the pain, but he came down in such a way as to say, I'm in this with you, and I will be with you if you stay with me. So I spent from '95 to 2000 traveling around the world, doing conferences, uh, wrote two more books, um, speaking for God. But in my heart of hearts, I I was heavily involved in the stock market and uh, I'm a poor kid. I, I, I come from a poor family, and uh, and so I was I was becoming rich in the stock market. I was reading more about uh, uh, the market than I was about theology or scripture. So I told someone the other day, I'm, I'm an expert at at leaving God but making myself look like He and I are still fine. Mm. And so if you if you looked at me uh, outwardly, you'd hey, Hey, guy's are writing books, speaking. Yeah, you know, he's actually helping lead people to Christ. But inwardly, my real joy had, had become all these all these uh, stocks that I had. In some days, for uh, uh, back in uh, between ninety five and two thousand, I made more money in a single day than I than my annual salary had had been in the past. And I was approaching the point by uh, the spring of two thousand. I was approaching the point. Where I, I would never have to work again. Uh, I mean, I, I could do whatever I wanted. I could. I was going to cash out in the middle of the summer, put everything in a safe interest-bearing account, and be completely free. So, I, for the last five years before I lost my son, I'm still praying for my son and all that. But I, the the joy, a lot of the joy in my life is coming from what I think is the smart financial move. And all I was doing was investing in tech stocks and denying that it was a bubble. So I lose my son. Now, money means nothing. You, you know, you can always get money back, uh, but you can never get a son back. So it's two weeks after the funeral. We're, we're, we're still living in the home with our uh, best friends from 30 years ago, John and Nancy Snyder, huge home. And uh, my secretary comes in. No, excuse me, the bill from the funeral company comes in. And it's $10,000, $10,064.69 and they would like their money right now. It took them two uh, two weeks to find us because we didn't have an address anymore. 30 minutes later, my secretary comes in, and she brings a huge sack of mail, and I know exactly what it is. I dump it out, and there are 38 sympathy cards. And out of those 38 sympathy cards fall 22 checks, one check for each year of Scott life. The funeral bill, was $10,064.69. I total up the checks, and they're $10,065. Mm. And I, I didn't say thank you, God. I was stunned. My heart was beating so fast. My, my brain was, well, what does this mean? And I'm, I still had money in the bank. I didn't need that money. I had money in the bank to uh, pay for the funeral and, and then some. Eventually, I would lose all the money. But at that time, I didn't need this at all. And finally, I just said, God, what are you saying? And then I heard these three sentences, I paid for his death, I paid for his life, and I'll pay for everything you need the rest of your life. Mm. And I just broke, I broke down sobbing. I mean, I had ignored God for five years for money. So if that's what I loved, he would speak to me with money to get my heart back.
1: We're going to continue and- our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Jack Deere. His uh, book is titled Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. The book is published by Zondervan. We'll uh, be back in just a moment. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing our conversation with Jack Deere, author of Even in Our Darkness, a story of beauty in a broken life. What you've just described is a miraculous demonstration of God's love for you, reaching out in a way that you could hear. You write about the book that uh, it's not about suffering, but about finding a friendship with God, feeling loved by God, and being able to enjoy God, and that suffering is one of the tools that God uses to deepen our friendship with Him. Now, for some of our listeners who are in that acute phase of suffering, uh, this may ring hollow because they haven't had that experience. But let's talk a little bit about how god uses suffering to draw us to himself and how he expresses his love for us even when we are suffering loss
2: yeah so god is a great father and and great fathers great mothers never cause their children pain unless it's absolutely necessary unless it's as fathers and mothers we will cause our child pain to protect, to protect them from some far worse more destructive pain or to get something in their life that we we're not able, we're not able to get in another way, and I, I think God does the very same thing. So in Hebrews twelve, it says the, the writer says God scourges every child he receives, and that's and he uses the same word scourge that was used for Jesus' scourging. So he's saying God will permit tremendous pain, uh, but he does it for our own good. He says so none of this seems joyful at the time. But after, afterwards, it yields this peaceful fruit and, and discipline. So if anybody wants to become great friends with God, they have to do two things. They have to make friends with their pain. That's Hebrews 12, 1 to 5. Excuse me, that's Hebrews 12, 5 to 12, the end of the chapter. But prior to that, he says, consider Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. In other words, Give full attention to him. Talk to him. Um, ask his opinion on things. Uh, keep him right at the center. So focus on him, not your performance. That is a loser. Focusing on your performance is always going to be a loser. Make the main focus on him, and then make friends with your pain. And, and telling somebody that pain is going to make us better when they're just entering into it or in the midst of it is not good. Uh, we're the ones now that get those calls when children commit suicide, we are one of the first ones to go in the home, and, and I don't come and say, uh, you know, I'm totally healed now, although I am, I think, totally healed now. I don't come in and kind of say that kind of thing. I come in and ask them to tell their story, and then they'll ask me to tell mine. Um, and then they'll have specific questions about, uh, you know, when you've found this body, and I, I'm, it's graphic, I don't want to go into it, but they mm-hmm. will ask those same things. And just having another person in the room with you who's been through something as horrific as this, and uh, and it's functional. Uh, it, 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 without you saying that you, there, there's been an overcoming, of, they can see it, and it causes uh, hope. And the thing that was most important for us was when we lost our son, our friends gathered around us and cried with us and loved us. That's what our best friends did. Nobody tried to get God off the hook. Nobody tried to explain suffering or that sort of thing. So that's my... Our first response is just to love people and be available to them. Uh, People washed our clothes. uh, They made uh, dinners for us. I couldn't make a decision about my son's funeral, his casket or anything. And my friends just gathered around and they did uh, all that. So in those early stages, I, I I, I don't try to take the pain away or rationalize it or say, you know, all things work together for the good to those who love God. There's a time to say Romans 28, and there's a time not to say it.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and just writing this book, two of my friends have read this book uh, and found great help in it in these this last uh, few months. And in the last two months, both of their uh, sons have committed suicide. Mm. Mm.
1: The and, subtitle. And
2: then, um, Go ahead. Uh, and I'm the one they call. I mean, yeah. I, and.
1: The subtitle of your book is a story of beauty in a broken life. For those who are in the midst of the broken life and haven't yet uh, seen or experienced that beauty, how would you describe it, having gone through what you have gone through, and then uh, put yourself in a position where you're comforting others who are going through the same thing?
2: Yeah, so um, the the greatest prayer in the whole world, outside of Jesus, was King David, Uh, we're still singing and uh, using his prayers. Two billion people are still using those prayers today. There were three, they were um, written 3,000 years ago. Nobody's got that track record except David. And then David boiled all his prayers down to one single prayer. In Psalm 27, 4, he said, um, uh, One thing ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord." And, and the beauty um, is, is what dazzles us. And so what David was asking for was not more knowledge of God's attributes, but he was asking for an experience of God's character, of his wisdom, love, power, compassion, mercy, that would dazzle him. And, it take, and he, so he's asking for a revelatory experience of, of God in such a way that he's dazzled by the beauty. And so when, when I talk about a beautiful wife, it's a person who not just once sees the beauty of God, but it's like a driving theme in his or her life, and it, it's it's not continual, but but there there are these glimpses of His beauty that allow us, um, that, that just just like that experience I just described with Him giving me almost the exact sum of months, you know, that was an experience of the of the beauty mm-hmm. of His brilliance and His love and His absolute commitment to me. I was dazzled by that, and that, I can live off that for so long. In fact, even talking about it some days, when I tell that story, I start crying all over again. So that's what, that's what I'm looking for every day in life now. I'm looking for God to break through in some way and let me have a glimpse of his beauty and actual experience of it. And then I talk about these all the time when I preach or stand before people. I'm just one-on-one. I'm, I'm talking about ex- experiences of his beauty, hoping to lead people into a similar uh, experience.
1: yeah. yeah. Well, the book is titled Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. Uh, it's published by Zondervan, and there's there's so much more in the book than our conversation could reflect, so I would highly recommend it. And I thank you so much for being willing to write uh, in such a way that that gives us a, a glimpse into what not only your life is like, but what so many of our lives are like in terms of our walk with uh, with the Lord. Thank you so much.
2: You're so welcome. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: God bless. Again, uh, John Deere, or rather Jack Deere is the author, Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. We're back for the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. With the world's attention fixed on the horribly violent persecution of Burma's Rohingya Muslims, and let me just point out that the world is rightly focused on that violent persecution, it's important to point out that Christians are also suffering from a less visible but also brutal mistreatment and ethnic cleansing campaign at the hands of the Burmese army. Now, Myanmar is what we call it today. That's according to aid agencies, human rights groups, and the U.S. officials. Well, the campaign against the Christians, which according to estimates has displaced at least 100,000 people, has also left thousands stranded in the uh, capricious Burmese jungle terrain, either from fleeing heavy bombing or living in fear of what will come when the current uh, monsoon season ends. Now, many years ago now, it's been more than a decade, I was in. Um, I believe I was in Thailand and it, just on the border of uh, of Burma or uh, Myanmar. And I remember there was a, a refugee camp there. It was rather large camp. The Taiwanese they didn't want them there. The Thais did not want them there. But they had established a Bible school. They were training missionaries to, to go in various places around the world. It was such an impressive thing. These people had lost everything. They described how they were um exiled from their country. They were in a territory where they were not wanted. And I recall telling the story on the air at the time, but we asked them, how do you intend to uh, serve as missionaries in various parts of the world without money, without passports, without visas? And they looked at us as if we had never read the scriptures. They believed that God was calling them to be missionaries and how that was going to happen was not up to them, that he would provide the means for it to happen. So I have a uh, feel, a real connection with Christians in this area who have a heart for the world. Uh, So when this story was brought to my attention and I was reminded of the Christians who continue to suffer there, I wanted to share it with you. According to um, Ephraim Matos, who's East Asia Operations Manager for the Nazarene Fund, one of the humanitarian groups that works to support the plight of Christians worldwide, but also in this area, he says that Christianity is under direct attack by the Burmese army. Christians have repeatedly been singled out for rape, for torture, for death over the course of this war, and the trend is continuing. In Burma, if you don't fall into a category of being Buddhist and ethnic Burmese, then you are considered second class and not worthy of the full rights of a citizen. Christians in Burma, also known as Myanmar, uh, make up an estimated 8.2% of the Buddhist-dominant population, or around 4 million people. Many of these Christians live in the often undeveloped, neglected periphery states, and that's where we met the group of believers in one of the periphery states. Christian groups backed the um, uh, British against Japanese occupiers during World War II and were once promised a homeland of their own, but they have instead encountered nearly seven decades of protracted war and the iron fist of Burmese military, suffering significant persecution ranging from the things I've already mentioned. They're also being forced to use their own bodies to enter landmine peppered areas in clearance for Burmese troops. Well, I won't go on, but I wanted to bring our brothers and sisters in this area, to your attention to uh, to pr- uh, for prayer, and we'll continue to follow their, uh, their plight uh, moving forward. There are humanitarian uh, aid groups that are attempting to minister to them, pr- to provide for their needs, but this is a desperate situation there. Uh, we can begin by praying, and certainly uh, leaders of our country, as opportunities uh, uh, present themselves, um, may have an opportunity to provide relief for them as well. Again, these are Christians in Burma, also known as Myanmar, uh, not so much in the news as are there uh, uh, Rohingya Muslims in that same area. Taking a look at uh, the remainder of this week here on the program, Tracy Miles will be my guest tomorrow. The book is titled Love Life Again, Finding Joy When Life is Hard. Kind of a follow-up to our conversation earlier today. On Wednesday, we'll talk with James Robin, Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. And on Thursday, uh, we're working on, uh, we had, uh, scheduled an interview that, that has since fallen through. So we'll, uh, we'll let you know what's coming up on Thursday. But on Friday, as things lighten up, we will focus our attention on doing the same. So that's uh, our lineup for the remainder, uh, of this week. If you didn't have an opportunity to hear my conversation uh, earlier this hour with, uh, Jack Deere, Even in Our Darkness, The Story of Beauty and a Broken Life, uh, the name may be familiar, uh, to you. He was a, an assistant professor at, um, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, his son committed suicide, his father had committed suicide a generation before, and it's just a very um, unapologetic uh, telling of a Christian life that was um, more shallow than he recognized at the time, but what God has done in, in restoring uh, beauty and life and wholeness to he and his family uh, since these tragic events is uh, the subject of of this, of this wonderful book. So Jack Deere, you can listen on our podcast at kpdq.com uh, at any time, or you can listen on our AM station. The program is rebroadcast at 10 o'clock and you can hear it at about 1115. All right, I want to thank Dave King for engineering today's program and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow when Tracy Miles joins me, Love Life Again, Finding Joy When Life Is Hard. Have a great night.
0: To make sure our contests are fair to everyone, here's some guidelines. Employees and their immediate families of Salem Media of Oregon are not eligible. Only one winner per household per month. Prize winners must be at least 18 years old for prizes over $600, and you're responsible for all applicable taxes. We assume no responsibility or liability.